2: Hi
4: Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of December 19th, 2016. On this week's show, it's another three-guest fest. First, we'll be joined by journalist Jessica Luther to discuss the ongoing sexual assault investigation involving the University of Minnesota football team. Then Ramona Shelburne of ESPN will be with us to talk about Ronda Rousey, the mixed martial arts star who's returning to the octagon a year after her stunning loss to Holly Holm. And finally, we'll assess the state of the 0-14 Cleveland Browns, the 0-14, and, and the city of Cleveland's whiplash sports year with, who else, the bard of Cleveland via New Jersey, Scott Rabb. Josh Levine, the executive editor of Slate Magazine, is off this week. Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, is not. He's in Brooklyn, New York. I'm in Washington. I believe that under parliamentary guidelines, Mike, we have enough votes to pull a little North Carolina state legislature and change the rules around here yeah. in Josh's absence, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. You
5: You get to run this thing in odd years.
4: I think that's a good solution. Or odd weeks. That would work, too. Mm-hmm. Are right, you got any whimsy? NFL whimsy? Yeah, of NFL course I do. Leads. It's The same. I mean, the, as, there's only one whimsy, this, really. It's the
5: most whimsical thing ever to happen. This is the ever. whimsy. Yeah, this is
4: peak peak whimsy. Yeah. Zeke Elliott yep. jumping in to the Salvation Army kettle behind the end zone in <laughs> Dallas after scoring oh. a touchdown. Oh my God! You cannot it,
5: break that whimsy. That's whimsy. The whimsy scale has been broken. I think the only downside to this is half of the headlines about it are Ezekiel Elliott will not be fined. Not be fined. He's he could he should be, the, be rewarded. Exactly. He could be the MVP, but he's the MVP of Whimsy. In fact, if he's tied with, I don't know, Le'Veon Bell who missed games or or, or who else could it be? Matt Ryan. I think this mm-hmm. should break the tie. Like until Ryan gets in a kettle, that's it. He can't win MVP. Not only that, jumping in the kettle was the most charitable act that a professional athlete will have committed all year. Mm -hmm. There's no hashtag support, you know, support my kids, support the Ezekiel Elliott Foundation. This was it. And and this you know the salvation raw,
4: yep. unadulterated whimsy slash charity
5: right and if it was the Ezekiel Elliott Foundation you know like they'd be hiring all the other Elliots in the front office and seventy percent would be going to overhead Salvation Army does a good job
4: question now is whether they will turn this into some sort of stunt there'll be NFL players popping out of the Salvation Army cattle. but even if they do
5: yeah go for it. Yeah. You know, the good good thing about the Salvation Army is there are people who sing the carols, but there's always one guy who does the clanging of the bell. Most Mm -hmm. NFL players, I would assume, could keep time and they just have Mm -hmm. to do that.
4: Yep. All right. On our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to take a look at the NFL's Color Rush uniforms, maybe rank them. There's never been a better time to sign up for Slate Plus. For Slate's 20th anniversary, for a limited time, we're offering 30% off of an annual membership. That's just $35 for a year of Slate Plus with bonus segments of this and other Slate podcasts each and every week and much more. So if you haven't joined Slate Plus yet, sign up before this offer disappears. You can do that at slate.com slash hangup plus. When 10 members of the University of Minnesota football team were suspended last week for involvement in an alleged sexual assault of a fellow student, teammates rallied to their defense. They accused the university of behaving unfairly, masked before the media in their jerseys to defend their brothers, and threatened to boycott an upcoming bowl game. Here's wide receiver Drew Walitarski reading a
5: statement. We, the United Gopher football team, issue this statement to take back The reputation and integrity of our program and our brothers that have faced unjust Title IX investigation without due process. We are concerned that our brothers have been named publicly with reckless disregard in violation of their constitutional rights. We are now compelled to speak for our team and take back our program.
4: The only problem here, the young Gopher brothers were badly uninformed. While police and prosecutors declined to bring criminal charges, an 80-page investigative report by the university painted a horrifying picture of what happened in an off-campus apartment early one morning in September. After several predictably embarrassing missteps, the university confronted the protesting players who canceled their ill-conceived boycott, and thank heavens the holiday bowl will go on. Jessica Luther joins us now from Austin, Texas. She's the author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football, and the Politics of Rape. She also helped break the story of misconduct and cover up in the sexual assault cases at Baylor University last year. Hey, Jessica. Hey, how are you? Good. Thank you for joining us. Uh, When this story broke it had all the signs of your classic shit show, the football coach tweeted this about his players' boycott. Have never been more proud of our kids. I respect their rights and support their effort to make a better world. I mean, even if he didn't know a single thing about what had transpired, this is just unconscionable. The athletic director and university president stammered and obfuscated. By the weekend, though, something had changed. Minnesota administrators did seem to be actually saying and doing some right things. Can you compare the sequence of events here to Baylor and other cases like Florida State? What distinctions, if any, do you see?
3: Yeah, I mean, this is weird is the adjective I keep using. Um, But it's, I mean, it's different in that they that it happened during the football season alone is very strange. Like I had multiple people sort of contact me and be like, the timing is weird. And that they meant that they were picking on these football players because they did it during football season. But the fact that they actually made these decisions on the university level and chose to suspend them before a bowl game was a pretty bold move. I mean, the university has been in front of this as much as a university really can be on a case like this. Um, and And that's pretty strange, actually, when you compare it to, say, Baylor or Florida State around the Jameis Winston case where everything seemed to happen very reactively and in all ways to not hurt the football season.
5: And I think that's probably because if there's a continuum of responsible, what we'd want universities to be, and no one's perfect, and what we, the just epitome of falling down on the job, Baylor and Florida State are definitely on the falling down on the job part of it. uh, Beyond their football team, so much reporting has revealed that. And Minnesota seems pretty good. Like, this is what you'd want a university to do.
3: Yeah, I mean there is a bigger context for this Minnesota moment as well that I think we haven't really talked about a lot in the media. Um, You know, in 2014, 2015 season, there were multiple accusations against football players at Minnesota. This came out in a star tribune report in October of last year because the Star Tribune was looking for emails relating to the firing of the athletic director of Minnesota for sexually harassing multiple female employees, uncovered this email to the athletic director about multiple players who went um, unpunished for accusations of sexual assault. You get a new AD in May of 2016. This is the first big case. You know, she reports in early September, the Department of Education's uh, Office of Civil Rights They want uh, universities to do these investigations and have have an answer within 60 days if possible. This went a little bit farther. Universities are supposed to also get out of the way of criminal investigations. Uh, So even the timeline tracks, the AD, the new AD seems to really be taking up this issue in in a way, like you said, that, that you would want a university to do based on federal guidelines around this issue. Maybe they're trying to do better than what they saw a couple years ago.
4: And maybe what they still need to learn is how to educate their athletes, though. I mean, the the weird thing here is that the players were completely unfamiliar with the rules of jurisprudence and of the rules of the university's uh, responsibilities and and procedures. They thought they were taking a principled stand defending their teammates, you know, with the foxhole band of brothers baloney that football culture reinforces. And I wonder why that is. I mean, maybe they felt that, you know, they were taking a stand the way college athletes are being encouraged to take stands about pay and labor, that this is part of some general uprising against a system that's that's stacked against them.
3: Right. That's definitely what they thought they were doing. I mean, for someone like me who studies sexual violence in the society, they were upholding the status quo, which is why they were doing sort of the exact opposite of Missouri, which was, you know, in 2015 going against racism. It was that 2014? Um, and But yeah, I will say You know, going to college campuses, talking to lots of students about these issues, most students don't know where Title IX is. They don't really know what you're supposed to report to Title IX or how to do it. Universities are supposed to, under federal mandate, do preventative education around dating, violence, sexual violence, consent, things like that. When I ask students if they get that kind of education, most, like Some of them will say yes, so I imagine it is happening, but a lot of them don't really remember. Uh, there was definitely a failure of knowledge around this. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty clear when um, Walatarsky was reading the statement and then his sort of off-the-cuff remarks afterwards at the press conference that he didn't have a firm understanding. Like When he says due process in the unjust Title IX investigation, we still don't really even know what they mean. By that, it's sort of hard to figure out exactly what they're pointing to. And, I, you know, there are plenty of universities that have been under uh, intense scrutiny, both by people who've been accused and the accusers for having bad due process and unjust investigation. So, you know, this is common language right now. It's It's not as if this is not possible, that Minnesota has messed up. But we don't really have a sense from the players what they even meant by that he also didn't have a firm understanding of the criminal side of this. You know, he said something like they were just found not guilty by the law, which of course is not true. They didn't go to trial. There were no charges pressed, which is neither guilt nor non-guilt, right? Um, And then when it came out that they hadn't even seen the report, like they didn't really even understand what had happened that night, just the levels of like, Un, like what's the right word? They disinformation, uninformation. What's the right word here? No. Um, the, the amount I, that they did ignorance? not know. Going ignorance? <laughs> ignorance. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> when ignorance is
5: blindingly obvious. Yes.
3: Yes. And so it's just kind of like when you think about all the things they didn't seem to know anything about when they decided to make this incredibly public righteous stance uh, is well, I don't know. It's uh, unbelievable to me. Yeah, and, and
4: it's also clear they didn't get good advice from the adults um, yeah, who could who have said you probably shouldn't do this because that that investigative report. I mean, the details in there are stomach-churning and also distressingly familiar. You had alcohol, a woman who felt trapped and powerless, who couldn't remember to consenting to sex with one man and then quote, a line of men waiting to take turns. She testified, I was shoving people off of me. They kept ignoring my pleas for help. Anything I said, they laughed. They tried to cheer people on.
3: Yeah, and then the EOAA, the group that did this investigation, also found that they didn't really, the players themselves weren't very credible in how they told their stories and their ability to keep their stories straight um, individually and then as a group. and. Yeah, it's a really rough read, those 80 pages. And this is often true. Like the stuff that I read a lot of the time, police reports and university reports are often are very difficult. Um, and the fact that it seems like the players didn't really have an understanding of that, the ones other than the 10, <laughs> um, is, is just terrible.
5: But when I first got wind of what this protest was, and I said, all right, what was the alleged assault? So at the same time... That uh, Drew Walatarski is making the stance and using the appropriating the language of you know righteousness and justice and boycotts and and taking a stance for some sort of uh, civil right. Okay, at the same time he's saying this, I'm clicking on well, what really happened? And the story that if you were to believe there was you know no guilt, no legal guilt, was that group sex with at least two men turned into at least four men and that alone like how much do you have to know before you say yeah this is the cause we're getting behind and correct me if I'm wrong like Stefan just alluded to a line of players the reason that 10 players were suspended is that double digits number of players had sex with this woman or raped this woman um, And that's what you're getting behind? How could Drew Walatarski not have at least done the clicking that I did at the time to know that? It seems crazy to me.
3: Yeah, it does. And at the same time, people's deep belief that reports of this kind must be lies, it's just so common. Like they really can stand up there and just assume that this is just what kids do in college. And she's not telling the truth about what happened to her. And they're standing up for their teammates. I mean, it's kind of amazing to me. I hear all kinds of things because I do reporting on this all the time that just blows my mind what people choose to believe what they can't see. Um, And I mean, this is kind of an extreme case of that. But I'm also not super surprised that that's how these teammates came down at first, at least. And I think
4: that's if you're going to criticize the university and there's certainly room for criticism. I mean, the president stood up at a in front of reporters and wanted to make this distinction, that the players weren't condoning sexual violence, they were just supporting their teammates. And Sally Jenkins wrote a a column in the Washington Post that I think really got it right about this, that that's not the point. Everyone's against sexual violence. You know, Sally writes that, if you're a high profile football player, concerned for your reputation, then perhaps it's best if you don't engage in sex with an inebriated woman whose recall and consent may be compromised. And going beyond that, that, Maybe if you're in the room, you shouldn't videotape it, and maybe you shouldn't be standing around, and maybe you should be stopping four or five or six players from, from doing this. And maybe coaches and athletic directors and university presidents should be relaying that message to all of their athletes.
3: Absolutely. So one of the things that I do in my book that I where I wrote about college football and sexual violence, over the last four decades I've located something like 125 cases which is not a ton over four decades, but these are cases that made it to the media. For most of this is a, the ones that made it to national media, right? So there's all kinds of caveats there. But of those cases, 40% are gang rapes. Are are accused, right, that multiple players from a team um, were a part of the sexual assault. That goes up to 50% of the cases if you include players who witnessed it, players who might have helped after, like, you get, like, the Vanderbilt case where they helped move her body out of the hallway. Uh, or uh, players who help retaliate after the fact, and so there's something here about the sort of collective violence of these moments. With this, in this particular vein, that I always find troubling. I don't have, I'm not a sociologist. I don't have much to say beyond that. Um, but yeah, this is like another case. Like at Vanderbilt, there were four players who were accused of raping a fellow student. Two of them have since been convicted. Uh, But I think there was something of upward of 11 players around that case that were witnesses or involved in some way, um, just not in the actual assault itself. And so this is just a horrible trend around college football and sexual violence. And I agree. I think... You know, coaches, university administrators um, really need to step up here, and and how they are talking to their athletes about this, and really take a you know a proactive stance against this kind of thing.
5: So, is the thing that I'm missing as a 44 year old person who's not on a college campus is that group sex with four, five, six men and one woman? consensually goes on all the time and therefore that's why these uh, guys would be understood if they misunderstood her intentions i mean i know the pitfalls of he said she said um i've talked to prosecutors about still prosecuting it but there's a reason that we have this phrase, and you know, some people think that that phrase can end a conversation. There is a certain amount of behind closed doors ambiguity, perhaps, of or provability with he said, she said, but once it becomes he, 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 he said, I don't know, it just seems to me like it, it can't be, it, the, the players engaging in it, it have to be under a gigantic misimpression about the nature of consent, what consent means, if consent can, you know, stop at any point after you know a certain number of people uh it seems like an education issue it seems like an ethical issue perhaps a media issue there's a lot that's wrong with that
3: yes i agree (laughs) um and i one of the things i always talk about if i get the chance is the need for preventative education around consent like we are as a society we have just we're failing at teaching consent um, to everyone, uh, not just young people, though that's just clearly sort of where we're taking this issue up the most. You know, if I ruled the world, we'd be teaching kindergarten, kindergartners on up wh- what consent is and sort of how to view it and why it's important and all sorts of things. But certainly at this point, I mean, there's enough of a crisis around this at the university level um, that university administrators need to figure out how to do a better job. And, you know, there are For coaches, there and I talk about this, too, as much as I can, Futures Without Violence has a program called Coaching Boys Into Men, and it is this amazing toolkit that builds these lessons that coaches can give around dating violence, healthy relationships, consent, things like that, right into practice every week, right? They have ways that they do this. And when coaches want to do this work and they use Coaching Boys Into Men, it's super effective. So when coaches are on board and they act like this is important... The the players get that, too, and and they learn from it.
5: Yeah, if only because you want to be consistent in your rhetoric about it being more than team. Hey, if you want to be really crass about it, you're going to lose players for the Holiday Bowl if you don't get on board, but maybe... Because, you know, as coaches, you at least say these things about uh, morality. But I want to ask you this, because maybe my last question was more like a cri de corps than something pointed. I, I think there are limits to saying things like, you know, nothing good happens after midnight or really reductive things like that. And yet there is an appeal to an old school coach just laying down a hard line. If you go over this line, this is wrong. And I would not object if someone in a position of power, not just an individual coach, but even the NCAA a said, look, we understand that things happen between men and women and not every act and there's a lot of gray area and accusation. But if the defense is several men said it was consensual, then the burden of proof falls on you. The law can't say that, I suppose, but it wouldn't be bad, in my opinion, if schools, conferences or the NCAA said, especially because you said forty percent of these cases are gang rapes, once your defense is that two male players or more were engaged in quote unquote consensual sex, then we're going to flip the burden of proof because that is way more unbelievable than it is believable.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, universities are interesting spaces because they do often have a different legal standard for consent. That's sort of what you're saying. I mean, even in this case in Minnesota, you know, they have affirmative consent, which is like they have to prove that she wanted to do what She what they said she wanted to do rather than she had to prove in the moment that she didn't want to do it. Right. That's the difference between no means no and yes means yes. And universities often use the yes means yes um, for this, for that reason. Right. Like these guys should have to explain how they knew that she wanted to do this rather than that she didn't fight hard enough to not have this happen to her.
4: Well, we'll see uh, how the announcers handle the holiday bowl and how the conversation continues in the public sphere around this. Jessica Luther is the author of On Sportsmanlike Conduct: College Football and the Politics of Rape. She was recently named one of ESPNW's 25 Impact Women of 2016 for her coverage of sexual assault in sports. You can read her latest story, Some Days the Bomb Goes Off, about the sexual assault case of a ballet dancer against her coach on BuzzFeed. Jessica, thanks. Thank you guys.
1: Terms apply.
4: 13 months ago, women's mixed martial arts star Ronda Rousey was knocked out by a roundhouse left kick to the head from Holly Holm before more than 50,000 people at UFC 193 in Australia. Before the shock loss, Rousey was everywhere. Who could forget her fighting turtle in the Entourage movie? After the loss, not so much. Rousey hosted Saturday Night Live in January. Then she retreated from view, had knee surgery, shunned the media. Now she's back, preparing for and promoting her return bout against new Ultimate Fighting Championship champ Amanda Nunez on December 30th. What makes me happy is winning and being the best in the world, and that's it. Rousey told Ramona Shelburne for a story in the current issue of ESPN, the magazine, fuck all the promotion and energy spent on anything that's not me winning. Ramona Shelburne joins us now from Los Angeles. Hey, Ramona. What's going on, guys? You've profiled Rousey twice in the last year. The other time was uh, right after the loss to Holly Holm. Mm -hmm. She's known for dropping a lot of F-bombs and speaking (laughs) candidly. Which has made her kind yeah. of a polarizing figure in mixed martial arts and in popular culture to some degree. For what it's worth, Donald Trump called her not a nice person. What is it about <laughs> her that you find compelling athletically and otherwise?
1: Well, I think what's, what's really interesting um, this time around is she is really on her own terms right now. Like, she's not, th- there's a part of her that knows that people don't like this version of her. They don't like this you know, they don't like her right now after she walked off the stage in New York. She didn't stare down with Amanda Nunez. and she um there's you know, she walks off the stage and Amanda stays and does the the interview and it, it, people don't realize that that Rhonda had negotiated. I'm not talking to anybody. I'm just not. And so when she walked off the stage, that was all pre planned. Yeah, that was what, last the, that was
4: last month at Madison Square Garden yeah, promoting another UFC Madison, fight.
1: Yeah. Right. And and, and the crowd booed. I mean, it was like the crowd was like, wait a minute. You're coming back out to fight again. You're going to be – you want us to buy your fight. You want us to care about you again, and you don't want to talk to us, though. There's this part of her that is so disciplined about this idea that I'm not talking right now. She's really only doing things that she wants to do on her own terms. Like the the idea of of talking at a press conference right before this fight – is, is just not going to happen. Like She's not going to talk after a stare down. She's not going to do all that extra little stuff that she used to do because in her words, she, she, she used to say this to me all the time, she goes, everybody only sees their one little corner, their one little ass, so it doesn't seem like a lot. But I'm the only one who feels everything. And I think sort of death by a thousand paper cuts, right? Um, she felt this accumulation of doing everything and doing so much stuff for other people, she was, she really wasn't doing a lot of this for herself. You know, sometimes you lose your center, right? And you start doing things, you get caught up in a current of what's in front of you and you stop thinking about what it is that you actually enjoy and what it is that you actually want to be doing with your life because she'd been on this rocket ship, you know, and it's white hot. I mean, there was no female athlete more famous than Ronda Rousey for there for a minute. I mean, Serena Williams would probably be the only one in the same galaxy, um, and even that is different because Serena's been at that level for 20 years. Rhonda just took off and, and found herself there one day. And so I think that that's what the story's really about is that is 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 her trying to find the discipline to say, okay, I have to do all of this for myself now. And what is it that I actually want? How many people actually know what they want? Do you guys? I don't always know. I, I mean, I can loosely define it, but I, I can't really say that on a day-to-day basis. And I think... That's where Rhonda is right now, or at least that's where I found her when I, when I spent some time with her this fall.
5: Right, I didn't know what I wanted until I saw Ezekiel Elliott go in the Salvation Army bucket, and I was like, that's exactly what I wanted. So, uh, yes, she's done Conan, Ellen, A Little Drunk History, Ramona Shelbourne, which one of these things is not like the other? And, which brings me to... (laughs) Well, which brings me to my point. She does the things that she wants to do, and if doing this interview with you can be seen in the context of that, it makes sense, because what she wants to do is carve out enough space so that she can not participate in the bullshit press conferences, but still do enough to signal to her fans or the potential ticket-buying public Mm -hmm. that I'm still in this and that I'm still... A compelling figure and the reason that that works seems to me is that the UFC fighter the anti-hero is the hero so she might have been booed in that moment but you know what if being recalcitrant and not playing their game and doing this great interview which you turn into this story which you know has her writing uh FTA fuck them all on her on her arm wraps and kind of just retreating into herself If uh, if that's what it's about, then she does become the antihero one time uh, occasion of booing aside. Her brand is propelled. Right. It serves a purpose.
1: You know, what I what I think is, is that you're exactly right on that. But I also think there's another current of this, which is simply a recognition of the life cycle of being famous. Right. When you are that it girl, when you're the one I mean. You know, they make movies and they say, you know, we've got to get Ronda Rousey in the mm-hmm. Entourage movie. And it doesn't, you know, the movie's coming out in two months, so write a part for her and get her in this movie now, right? Like, that's usually, when you're in that in demand, that's That's, that's how things happen in the world for you, right? Everything, everybody wants more and more and more of you. They can't get enough of whatever it was that you were. And I think at that time, I mean, Ronda, Ronda sort of captured this cultural moment where... And I think she was right in that same moment where Amy Schumer was, you know, on her rise. Tina Fey was in her in her prime. Um, it was this, it was these sort of you know women who were doing who were who were talking in ways that women hadn't before, right? They were saying things and acting out in ways that you know it was very empowering to to other women and also sort of jarring for men, but they kind of liked it too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think yeah. the thing about Ronda is that you know she was able to sort of be this. She has, yeah. You know, she, obviously, she drops a lot of f bombs as we talk, and she does that normally. But I mean, she's a fighter, right? And like guys can respect that. That's not just you know a, a potty mouth you know, comedian. That's not Roseanne Barr, right? She's she's a fighter in the sport that has been a, a fast rising sport. Yeah. Uh, in the UFC, right? And so she was she was probably the most popular UFC fighter, not, male or woman, um, for the, for a couple of years there, just because of the way she would win was electric. And then you know, to women, she had this crossover appeal because she was authentic in, in her confidence and her bravado. I mean, the way she, she, she would say things, and then I was waiting for the part where she would soften herself, where she would sort of say, you know, she would do the female thing, which is to, like, humble yourself or make other people more comfortable with, like, a bold statement, and she never would. She'd be like, I'm the best fighter in the world, I worked hard for it, and I'm going to beat this girl. And so there's this part of me when you saw the authenticity in Rhonda on her rise, that's that you, it's still there right now. And I think what she recognizes is quite simply after you lose, after that cycle of fame, you know, has its correction points, you don't necessarily want to keep talking. Like, you, you know, you have plenty to say, but people don't necessarily want to hear from you. Right. They don't, mm-hmm. they, they, you can't be like, when you talk the talk, you have to walk the walk. But when you get knocked out, just kind of need to shut up until
4: you can go fight again. All right. So the authenticity question with any athlete in a sport like boxing or mixed martial arts Mm -hmm. is up for debate. I mean, Rousey, Rousey does seem to go out of her way to protest that it's not about the money and that now I'm only in it for the winning. And at the same time, you know, you have to give her a lot of credit. I mean, this is about agency. This is about empowerment. I mean, she made women's MMA viable and popular. She basically yeah. forced UFC president Dana White to create a women's division four years ago. It's certainly not perfect. There aren't enough weight classes, um, and, and and there are issues there. Um, last month, she did something unimaginable for most fighters in the UFC, didn't she? She told White she wouldn't front when he wanted her to, which was last month at Madison Square Garden. Yeah.
1: I mean, that was... To me, this is you know Dana White and Ronda Rousey are very close friends, right? They're not just like fighter and promoter. I mean Dana White even told Ronda Rousey at one point, "You and Chuck Liddell are the two fighters who make my job fun." And I and I when I spoke to Dana, I said, "What do you mean by that?" And he goes, "I just you know the way we they think like I think like we're a real partnership. We really are close. Like they t- he you know he goes Ronda Rousey when she retires, I mean I'm still good. She's still gonna be one of my best friends. I mean that's how close they are, right?" And so. It's one thing to say no to. It's one thing to say no to you know your agent when he calls with some promotional opportunity, some some, some brand that wants you to you know rep them or whatever it is. It, you know that's just that's just a pass, right? That's like pass on a certain business. Mm-hmm. This is the UFC's first fight in New York at Madison Square Garden, where Dana White has been trying to get the UFC. You know they've been trying to get it legal legalized in New York for decades. I mean, this has been like sort of a holy grail for them and they need the the biggest headliner in the sport. That was like the biggest fight in UFC history and she just flat out said no. She was like nope, I need another month or so to get my knee right.
4: Now there there are other there are other women fighters getting attention now, right? Uh, Olympic judoka Kayla yeah. Harrison just announced she's going to fight MMA mm-hmm. 22-year-old Paige Van Zandt lost a UFC fight over the weekend, but she's got a star profile that's not dissimilar to Rousey's. In your story, uh, Rousey doesn't talk about other fighters much, but she has said some really awful things in the past. I mean, she said that Chris Justino was a man, called her an it. Is that promotion, or is that how she thinks?
1: Well, I think... the, the. Cyborg needs, like, when you, when Rhonda talks about Cyborg, I think that's a little different than almost when she talks about anybody else um, because I think she's referring to the steroids in Cyborg's history. Um, and I think that's a pretty blanket, I can't deal with you statement for Rhonda. When I talk to her about other UFC fighters, she, there's actually a quote that, that's one of those quotes that gets left on the cutting room floor. You know, there's a lot of people who come after her through social media, right? Cyborgs has been trying to getting her... Get it taunting her through, through Twitter and Holly Holm's dad I think you know called her out and said Ronda was terrified of her Misha Tate called her a broken woman and Ronda said you know I don't want to respond to any of them because it just gives them oxygen she's like none of them are grateful like I created this whole division I did everything I could to sort of build up the division so that it, it sustains beyond me and the only two female fighters who were grateful who, who show any level of gratitude or any level of respect Or Kat Zengano and a woman in Joanna Jedrezik, Rhonda said, I'll I'll help those two, but everybody else, why should I help them? Why should I give them oxygen? If I respond to them, it's it's a gift to them. And so why should I give them that gift?
5: Well, how much thanks should Chris Cyborg give to Ronda Rousey? I mean, she put women's MMA on the map, but the Mm -hmm. division she created is the division at her weight class. And Chris is 30 pounds heavier, and so they can't find a catch weight. So if I were Cyborg, steroids aside and not mitigating that... I would maybe not. I would be more resentful of Rhonda for not fighting me and not even, you know, allowing me to have a weight class that I could fight in than I would be thankful to her.
1: I think that's more of a Dana White issue though, right? I mean yeah. it's, it's sort of you know, Rhonda can only control what she can control, right? Like why is she gonna advocate for to create a new weight class? I you know, the one that just happened, right? They but if
5: Rhonda created- wanted to and it's it's harder I don't know who it would be harder for, but if they wanted to have a catch weight, it would be up to Rhonda to say, yeah, let's do it. And she could fight Cyborg. She's not the Pacquiao in this, right? In a way, she is a
1: Pacquiao, right? Because Pacquiao was always the one who was moving up in weight. Okay,
3: Um, right. Pacquiao
1: would have Mm to, right? So when he wanted to fight fight Floyd Mayweather, Pacquiao started off his career, I believe, at 122. Uh, Yeah, they could fight a catch weight, but to be honest, like, At the time, when when Cyborg was really calling her out, like, let's find a catchweight, let's fight, let's settle this once and for all, um, Ronda was like, look, I'm the champ. So generally speaking, when you want to fight the champ, it's not the champ who has to come up to a catchweight. The challenger has to do whatever it takes to fight at the champ's weight. Um, And Cyborg fights at 145, Ronda fights at 135. It's a 10-pound difference. It seems like you should be able to find catchweight, which is why... Cyborg took a couple of fights at 140. And that's, that's you know, the UFC gave her a couple of fights at 140. They weren't championship fights that she fought there. And I think, I don't know if you saw the OTL of the weekend, the Outside the Line show over the weekend, but she, you know, that that's a really hard weight for her to make. Yeah. I mean, she's yeah. crying and saying, like, I, I felt like I was going to die, et cetera. But I think what this really comes back to is what we started off talking about and simply, I on, Rhonda's saying, I only want to do things that I want to do. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think... There's this part of her that feels like she needs to prove anything anymore. I think she just wants to win again. I think she just sort of wants to make it right because, quite frankly, the you know the core emotion that I feel her wrestling with, I really think it's shame. I think it's embarrassment. I mean, I, I sat with her. It was probably two weeks after the fight, right? And so that was that was the first interview she did after the first loss to Holly Holm. And all she kept saying was how embarrassed she was and how much mm. she felt she let everybody down. And, and as I was writing this one, I kept remembering that first interview um, and saying, you know, what's at the core of this? Where, where, what's at the very, very emotional center of this. And it really is, she got knocked out. She's really embarrassed about it. Right? I mean, she she keeps saying, that was an embarrassing representation of me and how I fight. And when that's the core emotion that you're trying to deal with over the course of a year, in, and especially if you're going to get back in the octagon and fight again, you have to find some way of compartmentalizing it, right? You can't keep going down that shame spiral and saying, oh, I'm so stupid, I can't believe I did that, I'm so this, I'm so that. Eventually you compartmentalize it into sort into anger, into um, resentment towards everybody who doesn't get it or who you perceive having contributed to to the loss. I mean, I think I find her in all different stages of grief and compartmentalization right now. Um, because she's about to go get back in the octagon and and throw a punch. I mean, that's that's a big thing to do and put your career on the line, put your life on the line. You can't just be sitting there thinking about the last time when you lost
0: and when you felt terrible.
4: I want to pivot away from her for one last question. You mentioned (laughs) the Outside the Lines story that aired on Sunday, which was about weight cutting in mixed martial arts. Uh, mm-hmm. particularly with women I mean it's obviously losing weight to get to a classification isn't has been an issue for for decades in wrestling and in boxing and now in mixed martial arts uh, Chris Justino's cyborg said on the show that for one fact she lost 26 pounds in two or three days to make a 140 pound weight classification and the video is really disturbing watching her mm-hmm. sweat water out, drink gallons of water and sweat it out um, to get down to weight. Uh, Dana White gives a statement and he came off like an ass um, about why he doesn't create new weight classifications. But even the all women Invicta fighting championships doesn't go above 145 pounds. Is is this a, a real business problem for, for women's MMA? I mean, why are these organizations reluctant to allow women like Chris Justino to find fights at a more natural weight?
0: Well, I
1: think it all comes down to, um, you know, look, the fighting game is a promotional game, right? you got to sell it. <laughs> so in order to sell it, there has to be a legitimacy to it. And I think right now the biggest fighters in the world um, are all sort of clustered in and around 135 pounds, you know, maybe 10 pounds lighter, 10 pounds over. Um, there's just not that many fighters at the higher weight classes to where you could create a real division that would be healthy and there would be a lot of opponents for her to fight. Um, and so I think that's why that 145 pounds, I mean, you say, you say 145 pounds and that's where she really is, that's where she's going to be fighting at, that's tough for her to make. I think she right. walks around closer, 170, and, I, and Rhonda told me she had such a hard time before the home fight because it was her third fight in nine months. And the body is just simply not made to like, gain and lose 20 pounds over and over in nine months. Yeah. Just, it just doesn't work. Yeah, let,
4: let alone in, in a couple of weeks.
1: Right. And so I think it's, it's, it's perfectly natural for a fighter to try to cut eight to 10 pounds before a fight. You can do that just by sweating out water weight. But if you do too much, if there's too much of a weight cut, you're, it really damages your body and yeah. you're also, yeah. you don't feel good in the ring. In, 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 in the, in the and I know Rhonda was telling me, um, you know, before this fight, I remember this very. I remember this very vividly because it was the, one of the first times that I had met her, and um, it was last year before the fight. And you know, we were meeting at her house. I was gonna. I, I, the way she always does these interviews is like I fall into her daily routine as opposed to you know create a let's go to lunch opportunity, right? Because she doesn't want to break routine. And so I met her at her house. And we were just gonna ride to the gym to get do an interview in the car, and uh, I showed up in the morning, and it was. Um, she was really upset and I was like, what's the matter? And she said, I just, you know, I'm I'm 152 pounds and I should be 147 by now. And I don't know what's going on. I'm eating right. I'm doing everything right. It's just not coming off. And they were trying to figure out what was wrong. And you know, the Mike Dolce, who's her nutritionist, her nutrition coach basically said, dude, it's stress. If you're stressed out, your body's not going to release. And, that was a problem all throughout camp. And I remember seeing her and I just felt like she was, you know, I, I had no idea what to compare it to, but I remember seeing her at the weigh-in in Australia. And after she had done the weight cut and I knew it was a tough weight cut, but I didn't know how that, I didn't even recognize her. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is like, you look skeletal. Like, yeah, the, like the, when you see her at the, the weight cut with Holly Holm, it looked, it's just like a different person because of how much weight she had to cut in a couple of days and now when I see and they, you know, after that fight, um, her trainer had her you know, blood and urine samples and hair samples that they analyzed, um, they, and it found basically what they thought the whole time, which is like her cortisol cortisol levels were off the charts. But really what he said is we're not doing it this way again. You're not walking around 20 pounds over where you're going to fight. You're going to walk around closer to your fighting weight because that's really unhealthy. That's really torture on your body. So Rhonda kind of, didn't let herself gain very much weight in between these fights. Like She was walking around closer to like 150 most of the time as opposed to 160, 165. And now when I've seen her in camp, like I think she's already down to 140. I think she might even be under 140 right now. So when it gets time to cut weight, she's only going to cut two or three pounds. It's not going to be all that hard or that torturous. Um, and I think that's probably the adjustment Cyborg's going to have to make. She's going to have to walk around at a lower weight and then there's various ways of doing that none of which are all that fun right, right. And we all, you know, like especially when you're not in training camp you don't want to eat right like can you imagine um that you know as a fighter for, just for us it's hard enough to cut you know to lose anyway right but i think that's probably the adjustment that she has mm-hmm. to make so that it's not such an unhealthy torturous thing
4: Ramona Shelburne is a senior writer for ESPN. Her profile of Ronda Rousey is in the current issue of ESPN, the magazine. Ramona, thanks a lot. Thanks, guys.
0: I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore dealmaking across sports, media, and entertainment that is a harsh lesson in business.
1: Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I
0: didn't want to do another stomp you out speech.
1: It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal.
0: Deal. Listen to The Deal.
1: Listen to The Deal on Spotify.
4: It's been quite a year for sports fans in the city of Cleveland. AFC Cleveland lifted the championship trophy of the fourth tier National Premier Soccer League. The Case I Western Reserve right football there. Spartans.
5: That, that's, that's what, that's there's what more. Cleveland cared about. Okay. No, no, no. There's, there's more.
4: more. The Case Western Reserve uh, football Spartans went 9 and 1, losing only to the rival Carnegie Mellon Tartans short. in the last game of the season. It was the Tartans against the Spartans, yeah? yeah. The Cleveland State University women's volleyball team won its second straight Horizon League title. The Cleveland Gladiators made a heroic run to the Arena Football League Conference Finals. And the Cleveland Monsters captured the city's first American Hockey League title since 1964. 1964! That was the year Cleveland's outdoor football team last won a championship, and it was until this year Cleveland's last major championship. But we've had enough parades and redemption and J.R. Smith. On Sunday, the Browns lost to the Buffalo Bills 33-13. Only the Chargers and Steelers stand in the way of Cleveland's quest to become the 12th team in NFL history to complete a season with zero wins. We are thrilled to welcome back to the program, Scott Rabb. He's the author of The Horror of Akron, One Man's Search for the Soul of LeBron James. He's got a new book coming out in February. Guess what? It's a sequel. You're welcome, (laughs) Cleveland. How I helped LeBron James win a championship and save a city. Did you now, Scott?
0: You know, you know the books might not amount to much. It's not for me to say. But those two titles, The Horror of Akron and You're Welcome Cleveland, I, I think those are Hall of Fame caliber.
5: Yeah. <laughs>
4: I wouldn't argue with you. But the Browns are 0-14. And frankly, that seems more important to me than some basketball team. You've, yeah. been carrying <laughs> around, you've been carrying around that ticket stub to the Browns' 1964 championship game since, what, 1964? Please don't tell me the Cavs won. It's all good. I can die in peace.
0: Actually, I, I felt that way uh, and retired the ticket stub on June 19th, you know, 2016. I really That was my bucket list. I got to see a Cleveland team win a championship. I was not at the game, but I was in Cleveland with my son on Father's Day. 11 days after my father, on a day I'll always think of as, as Game 3, finally died. So the universe, the cosmos handed me... Uh, a series of events that culminated in what I had waited for since I was 12 in 1964. And to a large extent, as much as you might not want to hear it, and as willing as I am to cut loose about my feelings about the NFL franchise called the Cleveland Browns, I'm good. I really am. I would be a, a, a total liar to say otherwise.
5: Though if the Clevelanders could pick one team to have won it definitely would have been the Browns. They'd probably tell me if I'm wrong, even though it was the Browns who had the greatest accomplishments before the NFL, they'd probably trade. They'd trade one Browns championship for, you know, multiple Cavs plus even Indians championships, I'd
0: guess. I I, I I'm not sure about the trade, you know, of multiple, but I am sure that if you took a vote, uh, you know, one, you only get one team. Yep. But probably 90% or more would go with the Browns, no. absolutely.
4: Even though yep. it's not the real Browns, it is the Browns in name, obviously. We have two it's,
0: different it's, franchises it's, here. It's a very strange situation because there are plenty of absentee owners, so I don't want to, you know, simply yeah. urinate on, on Jimmy Haslam uh, for that.
4: The current owner. There's
0: so much more. But, <laughs> but there is something profoundly, uh, crazily dysfunctional uh, about a team that brought in Paul DePodesta, who's working in baseball. I certainly invite Yeah. Anyway, anyway this, this 0-14, if there's such a thing as a bad 0-14, this is
4: a really bad No, this 0-14. is a really yeah. bad 0-14. I mean, <laughs> yeah. RG3, a player yeah. got a DUI last week. Yeah. There was an OBIT in the Columbus Dispatch. Guy asked for six players to be pallbearers so the Browns can let me down one last let, time. Let, yep, yeah, which is really down, nice. Yep. The Browns reciprocated. They they did send the guy's family a customized Cleveland jersey with his name on the back, so maybe uh, he could be buried in that.
0: You know what's what's going on now? There's there. I hope I don't get his name wrong. It's, this guy uh, I only know on Twitter. I think his name is Chris McNeil, who's trying to get a. Oh, if they do go all in sixteen fellows trying to put a parade together. Yeah, he's now. got a
4: he's got a GoFundMe page. It's got right, five five
0: hundred dollars fund- so far. And 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 by God, I, if if most of the media in Cleveland, radio in particular, have not really come down hard on this idea, because you know I'm going to literally there was a, a host on on, on WKNR uh, who said he's going to mow people down with his car if they have this parade. This is you know the the problem, of course, is is the media are the Browns' business partners. That's part of it. But part of it is also you know, it's Cleveland, and yeah, I think a lot of fans feel like I do, not, not that they wouldn't have rather have had the Super Bowl, but that we're, we're pretty good. I yeah. mean, you come from being you know three, down yeah. three games to one against 73 and nine Godlings and bring it home. I'm good, but jeez, if you can't have a parade to kind of flip off a, an NFL franchise that in the league designed for parity is not remotely competitive. If, you, if that brings down the thunder, the Browns should sponsor that freaking thing.
5: So if the Browns do go winless they will have been the best winless team, you know, judged by many advanced metrics, bet much better than those Buccaneers and those Lions were. So is that better or worse? In a way, it would be very much in keeping with the Browns' DNA to be not only a winless team, but the, by far the worst team ever. But in another way, it's also in keeping with the Browns' DNA to be a team that's only, you know, one of the, like, the 39th worst team ever, and yet somehow we became winless also.
0: There, you could parse it that, yeah. that way. I mean, it, 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 but it's only fair to point out that we're talking about you know Tampa Bay as a team that had not been in existence even even as long as the Neo Browns. I mean, they they came back in 1999 as an expansion franchise and are only going to hit bottom now. That's ex- without ever com- competing. Really, they made right. the playoffs one year and were quickly dismissed. Uh, and that was long ago. I think 2007. Uh, this is extraordinary, and yeah, okay, yeah, it would be the Clevelandest thing ever, you know, if they're 0-16, they're but not really the worst 0-16. I, I mean, you just, you just can't convince me that anything could be more of a disgrace, you know, to the history. I mean, the Lions certainly have a proud uh, franchise, and, and, you know, historically, I was born in 52, so I remember Bobby Lane when he was still, you know, the, the Rebel quarterback. He was the Johnny football of his day, except he actually had a career. Uh, But but these Browns, especially when you see uh, the the shots of of the stadium, the home stadium, these Browns are especially disgraceful. You know, speaking as a parochial Clevelander, unbelievable.
4: Disgraceful in in what ways? And it's hard to be consistently bad in the NFL. I mean, the the business of this of this league is structured so that you can improve. Um, you have to have some sort of combination of incompetent hiring, incompetent yes. ownership, and yes. incompetent uniform design, which the Browns now have, um, well, in order to achieve this level
0: of, of sadness. That, and, and I think that's part of the disgrace. Uh, along with the uniform redesign and the new scoreboards, the constant, it's, it's an wait, wait,
4: What's up with the new scoreboard?
0: Well, uh, the, the the Browns, you yeah, know, this dates back a couple of regimes now, but the Browns went to city council, just like Dan Gilbert is going to the county for money to renovate the queue. Jimmy Haslam, back when Joe Banner was his general manager, you know, they went to city council and and wanted money because we need some new scoreboards. that That went along with the uniform redesign. So... So it is an ATM. I mean, you don't lose money. The value of an NFL franchise go, only goes in one direction, and that's up, and that's not arguable. None of this is really debatable. The, the extent that it's a, a civic asset, not a public utility, but a civic asset on that level, they're horrible. They continue to spend money and make money like an NFL team to suck you know, taxpayer dollars into a billionaire's maw and all of it's forgivable, in my mind, as a sports fan. If you're putting out a competitive team, instead they continue to go backwards. And, and now, I mean, there's San Diego at, at Cleveland this weekend, Saturday, and then the following Sunday, Pittsburgh, in Pittsburgh. So I think 0-16, it's never a lock. But if this, if this, it, how, how much more disgraceful can a franchise be to continue to tell its fans we have the best, most passionate fans. No, you don't. There, there are great, passionate fans everywhere. You have the longest-suffering, most enraged fans in the world. And and I I, I don't know that they wouldn't beat the, the expansion Bucks or Matt Millen's uh, Lions in a in, in head-to-head game, but I, I'm fairly convinced, and I've never said this before, about any pro sports team, that the Cleveland Browns could not beat Alabama, right
4: now. I think they would beat the Columbus
5: Panhandles, who went zero and eight in
0: 1922
5: in the NFL, though. Hell yeah. Yeah. Pretty the, fun. A uh, by the way, a, about that scoreboard, you know, half the time an escalator should technically be called a de-escalator. It really is a scored upon board, isn't it? Most of the time.
0: Dude. Yeah. So Seriously, I. So you, you just yeah. It's like this is like lighting the bum on fire. What <laughs> like you're doing to me now? Or speaking
5: of. <laughs> Speaking you know. of bum, I did a Google search for Manziel and Haslam. And the first result is um, Haslam says homeless man convinced him to draft Manziel. And that and the yep. Manziel thing is such an epitome of dysfunction. Most most owners who are bad know how to cover their tracks or blame someone else or there really is someone else to blame. I'm a Jets fan. I don't blame Woody Johnson. I don't think he's like knows anything about football. So sometimes you get lucky and hire someone who does. It is the owner's fault. He was the one who made the worst decision in the last 10 years.
0: And, and they've tried to walk that back a million times, both the homeless man and the fact that it was Jimmy Haslam who, who instructed Ray Farmer. And, and by the way, Manziel was just the culmination. You know how jokes—you know—you need three. Yeah. So, so that was the third of of Brady Quinn, Brandon Whedon, mm-hmm. and then came jo- Johnny Manziel. So, so, so as it wasn't around for all of those, but yeah, his idea of of. Of basking in the glory of the pick was to explain to the media that, yeah, some homeless guy outside of an Italian joint downtown Cleveland told me to pick Manziel.
5: I think about Brady and Brandon, guys whose draft slot didn't really surprise too many people. Or People were saying, yeah, that's where they should go. Everyone's like, wow, Manzel, kind of a reach. And so that's why it's a little bit worse.
0: I believe they all went at 22. Not to, <laughs> not to be argumentative here, they, 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 but the Browns traded back, <laughs> traded back up because Manzel. All of these teams that actually needed quarterbacks passed on Johnny football. The Browns wanted to make sure that he didn't get snatched for, for, from them. And, and, yeah, I mean, this was an extraordinarily toxic pick for, for a, an unstable franchise to bring. This. I mean, there could have been a different beginning to Ansel's to career had he gone to a team that had some degree of stability and confidence. Yeah, yeah. But that's, this was the perfect perfect storm of, of idiot, idiot franchise, idiot youngster.
5: Yeah, well, I it's quick, one of those examples quick. where he really fits our culture.
0: <laughs> Unstable. Oh, God.
5: All right, quick sneak
4: preview, Scott. Did you talk to LeBron for the sequel? And did the Cavaliers PR staff and you
0: make up? Mm, uh, well, uh, never. No, I don't want you to give away too much here. No, never spoken with LeBron to, the, to this day. There's been no communication, and, and his people. You know, I've tried, and his people don't respond at all. So it's not. That's a big no. And, and you know, on the level of credentialing, no, they're they're the Cavs for for understandable reasons, and I made it clear to them, uh, and in, and in the book, uh, it it totally made sense once he came back. They didn't want me even even as a fly on the wall because, you know, LeBron LeBron. Uh, has nothing to do with whether I think he read the book they're certainly aware of the title and and you know what it's it's good it's all good i, I totally get the part where having me show up parachute in as credential media would have been a what, what's the upside for the franchise compared to rich Paul or Maverick Carter or Lebron recognizing me and thinking that something was i i, I may i may be you know, sound a little grandiose here, but that's kind of how it was explained to I me, mean, not, not with those specifics, but by Pat Carper, their media VP, is we can't, we can't have anyone uh, thinking that we're cooperating. All right. We,
4: we will story. talk about this more when the book comes out in February. Right. It is yeah, called sure. You're Welcome, Cleveland, How I Helped LeBron James Win a Championship and Save a City. The author is Scott Rabb. Pre-order the book now. Scott, good luck yeah. with the uh, 0 and 16, and I hope you go to the parade.
0: I'm in touch with them, but, you know, uh, whether whether I head to Cleveland January 7th for an only 16th parade is still up in the air. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student-athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism.
1: We were really protesting our
0: treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
4: And now it is time for After Balls. There's one championship Cleveland team I didn't mention, the Cleveland Crunch of various mm. indoor soccer leagues. Mm. They won three titles in the 1990s. Their star was a guy named Hector Marinaro. You can hear Scott Rabb, who is sticking around. <laughs> Sorry. Marinaro is the all-time leading scorer in pro indoor soccer history, 1,446 goals, seven MVP awards, suck it, Michael Jordan. He currently coaches at John Carroll University in suburban Cleveland, but, but, but. The oddest moment of Marinaro's career came before all that. He was just 23. He and three other players on the Canadian national soccer team took bribes from a gambling syndicate to throw a match against North Korea in a tournament in Singapore in 1986. Canada did lose the game, so they, they threw the game well. Charges were brought in Cam- Canada, but eventually dropped. Marinaro was suspended for a year before going on to indoor
5: soccer greatness. Okay, Stefan. since you got Scott involved in yours, why don't you take it from here and tell us your Hector Marinara?
4: All right. Uh, We're going to listen to and comment on some Cleveland Browns music. You ready, Scott? We're going to start with the classic. It's the official team fight song introduced here by none other than the toe himself.
0: This is Luke Rosa of the Cleveland Browns. Hi, Ohio for Cleveland. huh
2: that's it's got I mean, lyrics
4: you know
0: the 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 hair of my arms is standing up man i bet I, you know i i they used to have a weekly show you know back in the day there were three channels and one of them carried the cornerback club, which which was a half hour recap with with uh, you know footage mm-hmm. of the Browns. So so it was introduced and, and and you know that that song was a huge part of it. And I could see Jim Brown. You know, this is like. I'm a little for
4: clem I bet you are. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's got a great history, too. Uh, High Ohio for Cleveland was written by George T. Redbird, the team's musical director. He was hired by Paul Brown at Massillon High School in the 1930s. And then oh, stuck with the team um, until it's got lyrics. Did you know that it has
0: lyrics? I, I did not. I ne- I've never heard the lyrics. Yeah. Can we, si- can we sing?
4: For the greatest team in the land, we raise our voices in one great chorus just to make them understand we're proud they come from Cleveland, where they play the best football. Hi, Ohio for Cleveland to the greatest pro team of oh, all man. there's a second yeah. verse too all right now let's uh, let's move on we're going to uh, stick with professional musicians this one is called dog pound it was recorded by the anderson council around 2000 or so mm-hmm. Those guys are still together.
0: That's, it's too bad that, that what began as a kind of training camp thing in 1985. 1985, uh, with Hanford Dixon and Frank Minnifield, a, mm-hmm. a pair of great cornerbacks. It and, and really really was an organic you know thing that, that went from training camp and the fans who saw the Browns in training camp and started in the bleachers during the preseason and then built into this thing. That has been nothing I'm not I'm not attacking the musicians or the song, yeah. but the whole idea of something like that inevitably being co-opted as it was long ago. Uh, I know I sound like the get off my lawn guy, yeah, but do. the songs suck. <laughs> All
4: right, let's move on to some fan music. There's a guy named Stephen Cole. He wrote and recorded an album of nine songs. Most were set to the tune of other songs. Uh Brownstown. Brownstown. Um, if you hate people from Pittsburgh the pina colada song bad bad Cleveland Browns let's listen to an original (laughs) composition we love our Cleveland Browns
2: play so great they won that central round. They moved the ball up and down the field with Bernie in control. And when you talk about the Browns, you're
4: talking Super Bowl. I love the common thread of making the Super Bowl.
0: Yeah, it's never happened. It's never <laughs> been to it. You know, I, I, I'm thinking back when, uh I think it was Brian Seif, it was pre-Cosar, back when that Browns team uh, the Cardiac Kids. Uh, Todd Rundgren's Just One Victory mm-hmm. was a song you heard a lot back when uh, FM radio was rock radio. Uh, you know, the, the whole Super Bowl, the yearning, the just the darned earnestness uh, to this day yeah. of, of Cleveland fans. is it, You know, it always strikes me as poignant. I'm one of them, of course. But, you know, you think about, I mean, there should be a polka literal. And there probably is. I just
4: I just I didn't find a it. polka, but but I did find some Christmas music by Angry Browns fan. And we mentioned uh, Brandon <laughs> Whedon. Here's uh, Whedon, the red haired QB. And this is from 2011. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, I'm afraid so. You're going to have to listen. Oh Go. my God.
5: <laughs> you know, Campbell and Hoyer, Tim Couch,
1: Kelly Holcomb, Dilfer, oh. Garcia, McCown and
5: Ty Detmer. But do uh, you recall uh,
1: the oldest rookie of all?
5: Oh, okay, at least that one rhymed. Jesus.
1: <laughs> we in the red <laughs> haired QB,
2: cost of very high traffic.
5: Twenty two. And
2: if you ever saw him, you you'd regret it. Plays like oh,
5: man.
2: Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
4: there were more Christmas uh, Christmas Browns songs on that. Right. I like when right.
2: they,
5: ble- they, so they bleeped a word that doesn't actually rhyme, rhyme. with pick. Anyway, yeah. let's go on. Yeah. All right.
4: All right. Last one. Uh, what Browns collection wouldn't be complete without a Johnny Manziel song? Here's getting Johnny with it.
0: On your mark, ready set, let's go. To rehab, yo. Drinks on me, everybody up. Pop them a low. I put the bro in browns. I know you heard. Haters running their mouth, but I just put in the bird. We got a new logo. It's almost the same as the old logo. It's lighter, brighter, got the Ugh. same shade of whiter.
2: Look to it, and it only took me two years to develop.
0: What's my name? John, yeah, wondering how could he and Josh Gordon get fine, but we were sitting in a car like we're Harry Kumar. We just bite Yeah,
4: That pretty it. much sums browns up the state it. of the Cleveland Browns, doesn't it, Scott? <laughs>
0: It, it really does. I, I, you know, you always like to think if you're a writer or artist or, or even, you know, a regular Joe, that when when the motion bubbles over and people really are moved, their their passion in whatever direction are moved to create, that the outcome in and of itself is is worth something. But I think we we haven't we haven't seen that. We haven't heard no. that.
5: An exception might be when your muse is the Cleveland Browns. Mike, what's your Hector Marinaro? So you referenced the Spartans versus the Tartans. And you know, when those two teams play, there's no one smarten, smarter. Okay, that doesn't rhyme, but they do play in the UAA, the University Athletic Association. My college, Emory, was in the UAA, but did not field a football team. In fact, the majority of colleges in the UAA do not field a football team, although the University of Rochester does, just not in the UAA. They play in the Liberty League. Ask me how many teams are in the UAA. Well, this is what I was going to tell you. So I will tell you that there are four teams in the yeah, UAA. I discovered and that. And there have been four teams in the UAA since I was in college. And so they have this situation where there are a lot of co-champions. Like this year, who won the UAA? You said it was uh, Case against Carnegie? Yeah. But there was Wash U also with the same 2-1 record. <laughs> when one team goes 0-3, like Chicago, you have a three-way tie for first place. Mm-hmm. And that is what happens. All credit. I'll, I'll tell you what happened to a couple of the other teams that used to be in the UAA. I don't know that Emory uh, had a strong tradition of football, but Brandeis played football for a decade from 1950 to 1960 and then discontinued the program, saying that it cost too much money and that it was difficult to recruit football players who are also excellent students with so much competition in the Boston metropolitan area. NYU had a great football team. They have a uh, future Hall of Famer, Ken Strong. They had a uh, Heisman Trophy winner. But after the 1952 season, the shrinking violets shrank from the gridiron, never to field a football team again. The UAA, which bills itself as the Ivy League of Division Three, is, I think, in this sense, a little smarter than the Ivy League, as most of their teams, or at least half of their teams, no longer field a football team, at least not in the UAA. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at slate.com. We'll also
4: gather the links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. While you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Shane Monahan. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, thanks for listening. And here is the Cleveland Pops playing "Hi Ohio, Cleveland.